This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. You know the deal. Your project is due EOD, but the stakeholder with the answers you need is MIA. Well, there's a better way. Guru is the knowledge management solution that delivers the information you need, when and where you need it. Guru lets your team capture information instantly, wherever it surfaces. Slack, Gmail, Salesforce, Microsoft Outlook coming soon, and more. Up today, Cloudflare COO, Michelle Zatlin. Hi, everybody. We are very lucky to have Michelle Zatlin, co-founder of Cloudflare, here today to talk about starting a business in the midst of some uh, economic headwinds. Clearly, we have a, a little bit of a headwind at, at this point. And I think Michelle's perspective as a founder during that sort of time period will be really useful. I think it would be really helpful for Michelle to just give a little bit of an overview about Cloudflare and about herself. Sure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Um, I'm Michelle Zatlin. I'm one of the founders and CEO of a company called Cloudflare. And uh, we started Cloudflare uh, during the economic downturn uh, right after the financial crisis in 2008. And so we started to work on this in 2009. And while it's different, it's definitely a different thing going on in the world today, I, I do want to say that there are a lot of companies that actually started kind of with us, that class of companies, and, and many of them have turned into big great companies today. So if you're one of those entrepreneurs who are working on your ideas and thinking, man, is now the time to start? It's definitely possible. So we, so we started Cloudflare in 2009. Uh, and today we have about 1400 people around the world. Our customers are internet properties. So websites, apps, APIs, and those customers come to Cloudflare to be fast, safe, and reliable online. So we build a service that does cybersecurity, uh, global performance and reliability for any internet property. And in these last 10 years, uh, we have 26 million internet properties that use our service um, on any given day. So huge scale. Uh, we stop about 50 billion cyber attacks daily on behalf of those 26 million internet properties. And we make the internet faster, safer, more reliable for a lot of people. So we're really proud of that. And our whole team is really proud of that. And so th that's one of the things we've done the last 10 years. And, uh, but one thing that's been really cool, starting the company 10 years ago in an economic downturn to today, about six months ago, Matthew and I and our team took the company public um, on the New York Stock Exchange. So we went from an idea that started during an economic downturn to a company that went public about six months ago. And today we're about a six, seven billion dollar market cap company. So Michelle, as you think about starting Cloudflare in the midst of an economic downturn, you know, and you sort of fast forward to the day, do you have sort of a sense or a tip, major tips for entrepreneurs as they're thinking about either starting a new business or extending their current business? Yeah, you know, I sometimes I think it's easier if you're starting than, than extending. So I'm going to answer your question with that frame of mind, because, you know, I think back to 2009 and it was really hard to get a job. I was doing my MBA at grad school and so many of my classmates couldn't get jobs. I had done my summer internship at Google. And I remember getting the call from Google, my manager at Google saying, hey, we've decided not to extend any of our summer internships a full-time offer. Because again, it was 2008, like there was this huge financial crisis and people just were not hiring. 
And, and in many ways, when, when it's hard to find a job, it's actually out of necessity, it's actually a really good time to start a company, the right company anyhow, because there, it wasn't, I wasn't competing with a lot of other offers. It wasn't like you had a choice of a hundred things to go and do, and you had to say no to a hundred things to go pursue this one sort of thing. So, so if I think back to our year at business school, a lot of amazing companies came out of that. And I think part of it is because it was the job prospects were kind of gloomy. And so for entrepreneurs who are starting to think about, about starting, again, I think for the right idea that you're really passionate about, if you really think you're solving a big, meaningful problem of a big market with tailwinds to your back, it can be a really good time. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's still really hard. And there's lots of things that was hard about it. You got to be really frugal. You got to innovate your way out of problems. But I do think the mindset of it's almost like your plant, your option B or your other options, it's, it's almost easier to walk away from it because it's like, there aren't that many other good things going on. So let me go create this thing that I just can't stop thinking about. And, and so that, that's for the people who are currently. And then the second thing I will say that I remember we raised um, our first round of money from Ben was, the, was one of the partners who helped uh, us raise our Series A and, and then uh, Venrock. And we raised $2 million, which you know, today people laugh, that's like nothing for a series A. But back then, you know, that was kind of the size of rounds. And I just remember Matthew and Lee and I and our team of the original eight people who really worked on this idea. I mean, we spent every dollar so wisely because we just, it was a scarce resource. And when you only have a little bit of money, you really innovate your way out of problems or engineer your way out of problems. And we had this great engineering team and we really innovated our way out a lot of problems and tried to figure out ways to do things cheaper, better than we would instead of throwing money at the problem. We used to have a saying, don't throw money at the problem, let's innovate our way out of the problem. And again, in a downturn like today where money is still gonna be hard to come by, that's actually, I think, a really good, um, it can take you very far when you're building your company. No, I, re I recall in the beginning that, uh, that your rule used to be that the answer when someone wanted to spend additional dollars to solve a problem was the first answer was always no. <laughs> and that in the future, to the extent that you couldn't solve it through creative programming or what have you, that potentially you'd uh, loosen the purse strings. But the reality is, is that smart engineering was an important part of how you, how you approach building, building the business. That's exactly in, right. In terms of in terms of when you were uh, ideating on Cloudflare, how did you get to a conviction on the scale of the scale of what you were solving and the the size of the market? Because largely at that point, particularly on both the content delivery but also the web security side, you know, this was not a problem that people were really focused on. Yeah, you know, so I, I I'm going to answer this question, but I want to make one caveat to my answer. Um, you know, a lot. When Matthew and Lee and I started Cloudflare, we really wanted to build a big company. That was our desire. And so a lot of my perspective is always behind building big companies. You know, again, a, a multi-billion dollar public company. That's, that's what we wanted to do. And so I'm going to answer your question because that was the frame of mind of what I was looking for. I was looking for a big, meaningful, hairy problem to solve that was going to turn into something, a big company. But there's lots of different ways to build businesses and there's lots of amazing companies that don't, that, that never become a multi-billion dollar company that are equally great and profitable. They're just different. So the advice that I'm going to share is really related to kind of this swing for the fence model and that works for some people and less for others. 
And so when you think back to what was happening when we start back in 2010, when we were working on this idea in 2009, we just saw there's this huge shift going on where we were going from a world from hardware um, and software that you owned to services in the cloud that you rented. And, you know, I remember like AWS was, was growing really quickly. And at the time, there was like a big debate of, will com big companies ever really use AWS? Well, fast forward 10 years later, that seems like such a naive thing to say today. I mean, them and Azure, like they've just had tremendous success. But 10 years ago, that wasn't a given. Uh, and so this is very, this huge shift was going on. There was all these software companies and then all these, the, the advent of all these SaaS application companies like Salesforce and Workday that were breakout successes. And we saw the same thing kind of happening at the network layer where, yeah, businesses have always wanted to be fast, safe, and reliable, and they used to buy a lot of hardware boxes. And we said, can we turn that into a, a global service in the cloud that customers rent from us? And we knew that was a big idea. Uh, and there was just this huge shift going on. So again, kind of this idea, there was a big market and there was a tailwind, there was this macroeconomic shift, which creates opportunities for new entrants. And then, so that was the first kind of aha and the second thing that I was really proud of, and I think that if you're a founder that can find both, it's like, wow, there's a big business here. Because the first you have to ask yourself, is there a business here? Because businesses are what sustain. The, the second aha that we had was our go-to-market, where we wanted to start with all of the startups and small businesses and nonprofits and developers out there who today were using nothing because they didn't have the budget or technical resources to, to buy kind of these enterprise-grade services that existed for big companies. And so we had this big aha of like, wow, we're going to start with small businesses and, and small websites and developers and startups and, and nonprofits who need to be fast, safe, and reliable around the world. And today they're using nothing. So when we launched, our competitor was nothing. <laughs> we were trying to get people to go from using nothing to something. And so we had to make it ridiculously easy to sign up and attractive. And if we did, it would kind of became a flywheel, knowing that our end goal was not only do we want to help you know, startups and entrepreneurs and small businesses and developers and nonprofits. But over time, we also wanted to go help medium-sized businesses and large organizations and big enterprises and government organizations. And again, fast forward today, we do all of that. But the early on, we really started with a different go-to-market and that allowed us to build our product and our technology and get momentum so that we can then go compete more heavily with current competitors among large enterprises. And so, so it was really, it was those two things. It was like, wow, there's a big macroeconomic shift. If we can help make the internet better for all these people around the world who currently have nothing, like I'd be really proud to work on that. And so it's this idea of, I thought there was a big business opportunity and something that I think Matthew and Lee and I were really proud to show up every day and work really hard on. Yeah, I mean, one thing, one thing that, uh, you know, I think it's worth spending a, a brief moment on is just the distinction between between good technology and good and a good business. And I think, you know, one thing that you and Matthew have always been focused on is building both uh, really solid technology and a good business. But I think for people that are thinking about building a business in this environment, it's not just solving a hard technological problem, but it's also creating a real business out of it. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's worth you talking about that for a few minutes. Yeah. I, so, you know, again, when you start a company and then now we've scaled it to, you know, in 2019, we did about 208, we did 287 million in revenue last year. So just to give you a sense, so going from zero to 287 million in revenue last year. 
And sometime along the way, you realize as a founder, it's all about mission and your vision and do I have a problem here? And how can I get people to come work for me? And, and how do I make sure that people love where they're working? But at some point, I remember having this big realization of, wow, we're founders and a business owner. And it's, re it's really hard for company. You cannot, the, tech is amazing. We're, I mean, we're an engineering driven company and that's where we love and we celebrate it. But it is so hard to compare technology between one company and another it's way easier to compare business metrics. And so at some point, we had to keep all the great things about our technology. It is about the tech. We love that. It's differentiation. We live that on a daily basis. But at the other day, we also had to put our business owner hats on. And the questions we ask ourselves as business owners are different. They're like, how fast can we acquire a customer? Uh, do they renew our service? Do they spend, do they want to adopt more of our services? Uh, how happy are they? How much does it cost us to deliver this service to them? And it turns out you really need to be to, to do both. And I think some founders forget about caring about the business metrics. And I actually think that's a real mistake because at the end of the day, if you have a really great business around awesome technology, that's when magic happens. And so, you know, I did not realize this on day one. So, and I wish someone had kind of come up to me in the face and told me really directly, Michelle, at some point you got to think about the business metrics. And for us, it was around 50, 60, 70, 80 million in revenue that I really had an aha of like, oh, wow, we are going to get compared on these KPIs and these metrics. A, I got to know what they mean. And B, which ones are we good at today? Which ones are we bad at? And the ones that we are bad at, okay, how are we going to get better at them? And, and then over time, we slowly move them in a direction that we're proud of. And even today, there's some that are better than others, and we continue to work at it. But I think the faster that founders can realize that they're also running a business, I hope that that means you'll get to 80, 100, 100 million in revenue faster than we did. So as you think about that evolution as a company, how did you instill a culture that was about leveling up and continuing to evolve and surrounding yourself with the people that you needed to build that business? Yeah, well, there's kind of two points to that. There's both like the people you bring in to hire to be part, you know, again, it doesn't matter how great the founders are, you need a team to go really far. And, you know, I think trying to get that first team to come join you and then scaling the team and who you need to be your first 20 teammates, who you need to be 20 to 100, who you need to go from 300 to 2000. Actually, people look different in those stages and some things are the same. People matter. They make a huge difference. And there's a huge difference between a great hire and a good hire at all those stages. But the types of person that we used to hire when we had 50 people in the company look different than what we look for today. Um, you know, today it's all about people who understand like process and repetitive motion and automating things so that we can do those things really efficiently so we can free up time and resources to do other things that, that help give us leverage in our business. Versus when you're employee number 20 or 30 or 40, you just need a lot of doers to like show, like roll up and do the actual work because you're in build mode, build, build, build. And, and I think that, you know, the types of people you look for along the way are, are different. Um, once you have great people on your team, you want to make sure that, that they stay. And I was talking to one founder a couple, re a couple weeks ago, and they were, they were really proud that they had 30% attrition of their team um, last year. And I kind of said, 30%, that's really high. And they said, no, no, no. In a startup, it's normal for people to leave that often. I was like, well, it's true. People leave more, more frequently than a larger company, but 30% annual attrition 
that there's something wrong. Either you're not hiring the right people in or you're not a very good place to work. I mean, I think most high growth tech companies kind of have annual attrition of 10 to 20% and you know, maybe 15 to 20% is considered kind of average. So if you're, you want to be less than 25, you want to be less than 20 and maybe in a nano point of time, it spikes because you're going through some really important transition. But again, most of your peers are at 15 to 20% annually and you're up at 25, 30, like something is wrong. Either you're not spending enough time on the hiring side or once they're at your company, they feel like they can't contribute or it's not a good place to work or the culture is bad or something is broken. So, and, and I really encourage that founder to go back and, and, and kind of rethink what they thought was good there. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, that's a, a leadership decision from founders of saying, what kind of place do we want this to be to, for people to work? And I think there's lots of great, great stories. And then recently in the news, the last few years, there's been some terrible stories. And I actually think it's up upon all of us as leaders in the tech industry to show there's lots of ways to create a work environment. And some can be really healthy and be a place where people choose to work and want to be and have huge success stories. So, so that's for like the team and, and, and getting people in. I would say that one thing that, uh, that we've done that worked really well for us that, is, that isn't always well um, appreciated or, or agreed upon and just worked for us is that hiring managers, like we have a belief that people come work for their manager and they stay if they like their manager. And so our hiring managers are heavily involved with hiring. And early on, we didn't have any managers. So that meant the founders did most of the hiring. And then we hired managers and they did it. And, you know, we were less than 100 people. I, I mean, 50% of my time was hiring. So you just feel like you're trying to always looking for people to join. And that wasn't, I also had all my other things I had to do. So that just meant I was working all the time. Uh, and today, of course, we have a recruiting team. We have a great recruiting team and they partner with the hiring managers. But even to this day, hiring managers are responsible for, for building their teams. And again, we have a, a much bigger organization today and the recruiters partner with them to build great people in. And even to this day, hiring managers spend about 20% of their time hiring every week. And that's, I mean, that might not sound like a lot. That's like one day a week or two hours every single day. And we just, I just, I just don't believe you can outsource it. Good people, we think there's a big difference between a great hire and a good hire and great people want to work for great people and they need to know their manager. So that's a little bit about getting great people to come into your company. I think if you're thinking about a founder scaling and how do you scale yourself through all these different phases, it's slightly different. Because I think some, you know, it's, it's rare to start a company and then still be running the company as a public company. And, you know, I'm really proud of that. And I know Matthew's really proud of that. And I hope that we have role models above us, whether it's like Mark Benioff and Parker Harris or, or whether it's, you know, the Shopify founders or Alassian or Jeff Lawson at Twilio, like there are definitely people that we look up to that we can look up to. And I hope there's a whole other class of companies coming up behind saying, wow, they did it. We want to do it too. Because I think, definitely think it's possible. And I guess there's a couple of things I'd say about scaling yourself as a founder is I remember someone said this to me once and they were totally right. They're like, either you're running your business or your business is running you. And you got to decide which one it is. And I mean, I'm a competitive person. Obviously, I want to run the business. I don't want the business to run me. And this is kind of, again, going from a founder hat to a business owner hat. And so you got to do things to scale with the business because what matters at 20 million in revenue is different than 100 million. It's different than 300 million. And I think that um, if you can be a sponge, 
that is like, if I, if I can only give you one piece of information, like advice, it'd be like, be a sponge, <laughs> like just this growth mindset, constantly learning, read. Uh, I mean, Saster, J- Jason and Lemkin and his team do an amazing job getting people here to help you. And if you just show up and listen for free, you will avoid making so many mistakes and grow as a leader. Like that's what I did. I went to a lot of things like this and I learned from people ahead of me and, and we got to where we were faster. So there's so many resources today that help you learn as a founder, like way more than 10 years ago. It's, it's pretty phenomenal. You read books and whatnot. I think as you hire your leadership team, sometimes people don't want to hire people as good as them because they're worried that they're going to look bad. I mean, that's like rookie mistake 101. You need to hire a leadership team that's better at you than everything you do. Because as long as you're confident that you still, you know, you're the vision, you're the founder, you're going to care about this more than anyone ever does. And if you can partner with these amazing leaders who are so good, the best head of product, the best head of engineering, the best CMO, the best chief revenue officer, and you all get everyone rolling in the same direction, that's how you build an amazing business, right? As a team together. And so you got to really hire a leadership team better than you. Well, Michelle, thank you for answering my questions. Yeah, likewise. And thanks to everyone who uh, listened in and hopefully it was helpful and I can't wait to see everything you build. And, and I hope you all build big companies quicker because you learned something today. Say goodbye to slip ups. Old news is a thing of the past. With Guru's verification tool, you'll always be confident that your team's knowledge is up-to-date and accurate because it's verified by your in-house experts. Saster listeners can get Guru for free today by visiting getguru.com forward slash Saster.